Loving God, we've come here today to sing your praises, to worship you, to praise you, and to be fed by you. And so we pray now that you'll open to us your word, and we hear it read and proclaimed, and that you give us hearts that are open to you. May we follow as you lead us in this day and in the days to come. Speak to us now, for we thank you for your presence among us. And we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. There's a small village south of Munich. It's in the Bavarian Alps. And in the village was a monastery. And the monks in the monastery were known for their gardening uh, acumen. They were very good at gardening and they grew beautiful flowers. They discovered that they needed to have some financial help to keep this monastery going, so they decided that they would begin making floral arrangements. And they did, and, and they were beautiful, so people bought them, and they, they made a <coughs> florist shop in their monastery. So these little friars would make these beautiful bouquets and say, Solomon helped uh, the worship. One day, one of the friars brought in uh, a Venus flytrap. And all the friars there in that monastery loved it. They began to feed it, you know, it's a flesh-eating plant, and they would feed it flies. A few days later, they noticed it was a little lethargic, and they couldn't figure out why, because they were such great gardeners. They, they knew how to take care of plants. And they thought, well, it's not getting enough nourishment. So they had to feed it more flies, and then they ran out of flies, so they began feeding it different um, insects, larger insects that kept getting bigger and bigger, and still the thing didn't quite come all the way back, and they were, well, maybe it's still hungry. So they caught mice and fed the Venus flytrap mice. And that wasn't enough, and they went to rats, and finally they got to the point that at night they would go out to the farmers in, in the area, and they would steal their sheep and goats and feed the sheep and goats to the, to the uh, Venus flytrap. And the villagers realized what was happening, and they, they could see the monks at night and their Cossacks out running around stealing the animals, but they didn't know what to do. These were the men of God. How could they possibly stop them from doing this? They're supporting themselves. And they thought, well, we've got to do something because it's our livelihood. So they discovered a man by the name of Hugh. And he was a professional in this area. So they decided, okay, well, we'll, we'll have Hugh come and help us out with this. So they hired him. Hugh came. He got all the monks together, the friars, in one room. And he told them the problem and how they needed to quit stealing things. And, and if they didn't, the police would come. And they said, well, we can't do it. We have to feed our Venus flytrap. He had the police waiting outside. The police came in and arrested all of the friars. And that took care of the problem. Now, you know what the moral of this story is? Only Hugh can prevent forest fires. <laughs> so, if you groaned on that one, listen to this one. There, there were three young ladies when they were going to go see a beat, the movie that, that Madonna is in. And they're all excited. They hadn't been together for a while. They dressed up and they're all ready to go see a beat up. And then one of them, the three were, were Christy, uh, Marge, and Tina. And they decided uh, to go, but she got sick, started throwing up, she couldn't go. And the other two were very sad that the friend wouldn't like, couldn't go with them and began to cry. 
And so Christy said, don't cry for me, Argentina. <laughs> now that leads to the point. <laughs> Did you hear about the grape that was just absolutely, absolutely possessed with spinning all day out in the sun? Well, that was his raison d'etre. <laughs> As you know, raison d'etre is a French word or phrase that means that which gives meaning, purpose to life. It's the reason we get up every morning, because we have a raison d'etre. Jesus, in the little story we'll read in just a moment, gives us our raison d'etre in two simple clear, concise sentences, he gives us what gives meaning and purpose to our life. And hopefully it helps us get up every day. Now we're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, beginning at uh, verse 28. But before, let me set the context. As you know, Rob has been preaching through the lectionary. And we're in the Gospel of Mark in the lectionary now. And Mark is on his way to Jerusalem. He's told his disciples a couple times that he's going to die when he goes to Jerusalem. They don't get that because messiahs don't die, messiahs conquer. So he's going there and he's on the way. He's not quite there yet. And uh, the religious elite, the religious establishment in Jerusalem are trying to to trap Jesus. And so they're asking all kinds of questions, trying to, to trap him, because they want to arrest him to stop this alleged sedition that he is leading. And so we come to another question that's asked, but in Mark's Gospel, it's kind of a benign question, it's kind of a, a good question, it's not necessary to trap him, but all three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospel, Mark, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or the Synoptic Gospel, all record this incident. In Matthew, it's very hostile. You know that the religious establishment is trying to get Jesus. And in Luke, it's a little bit hostile. In Mark, it is not. But it gives us the essence of, of what Jesus wants to tell us today. All right, so our scripture lesson is uh, found in the 12th chapter of Mark, uh, beginning in verse 28. And by the way, I'm reading from my new Bible. This is called the Common English Bible. It's translated in 2011. And uh, I have been reading it and found it's, it's very good reading and, and a very scholarly translation. But it's easy to read, and it's easy to read in public than some of the other translations. So that's why I'm reading out of it today. And Jake did a great job in reading it. Part of that, I think, was because this is a good Bible to read verbally out loud. All right. So... Uh, Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 28. One of the legal experts heard their disputes and saw how well Jesus answered them. He came over and asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus replied, the most important one is Israel. Listen, our God is the one Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You will love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. 
The legal expert said, well said, teacher. You have, you have truthfully said that God is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love God with all the heart, a full understanding and all of one's strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more important than all kinds of entirely burned offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered with wisdom, he said, You aren't far from the kingdom. After that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the reason I'm that Christ presents to us, that Jesus presents to us, is very simple. Love the Lord your God with your entire being and your neighbor as yourself. This is the core of our faith, as it was for Israel. We quoted the Shema earlier. And a devout Jew would get up every morning and say the Shema, the Lord our God is one. And then in the evening, before he went to bed, he would quote it again. And it became the central confessional statement of the Jewish faith. It is also a central confessional statement for us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart. But how do we do that? How do we love God with all of our heart? Well, it starts with knowing that God first loved us. And that's the truth in Israel, too. When you look at the history of Israel, you all know this, God chose Israel. And one of the uh, writers in the past said, how God of God, how ought of God to choose the Jews. True. They had nothing to commend themselves to God. They were not even a nation. They weren't even a people. And he calls Abraham and says, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And I'll give you a homeland. And so Yahweh, the living God, became the center of Israel's faith. And that is true for us as well. As we look through Scripture, we see that the theme of God's love preceding our love is over and over and over and over again. You can't miss it. John, in his epistle, the first epistle in the fourth chapter, gives a good statement about how God first loved us. Listen to this. Our, God love, our God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we first loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. There it is. In the how do we love God? We recognize that God first loved us. The Apostle Paul puts a very fine point on this truth when he writes in Romans chapter 5. But God proves his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, how would you feel about a doctor that diagnosed your child's terminal illness when all other doctors failed. And then he treated a child and the child lived. How would you feel about a teacher who took your child who was academically a grade level behind and helped that child learn until they became 
uh, at grade level or above in that year and now have academic options open to them. How would you feel about the youth director who, who came alongside your son and helped him learn to live without drugs? In a phrase, you would be eternally grateful. God has first loved us. So this is not a command that is hard. We're answering, and it is said that of love here, it is an answering love. That love has come and spoken to us, and we answer back in love. Just as you would have great appreciation and thanksgiving to those people that helped your children. Well, think how much more, how much greater God's love is for those. Is how much greater God's love is to us. He frees us from our worst impulses. He guides us and gives us a center. He gives our life joy, meaning, worth, and gives us a raison d'etre, a reason to live. All done in love. Describe. This question Jesus asked, which commandment is the first of all? And Jesus tells him to love the Lord your God with all of your being, everything you are. But Jesus doesn't, and maybe can't stop there because the love of God should, should and does flow outwardly to the neighbor. The love of God is not simply to enjoy the love of God forever. The love of God comes to us when we respond by loving our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus says the one commandment is great, but it doesn't stand alone. It's always connected with an outward expression of love for others. So the second, not the most important, but the second part of this Retron Decha is how the love flows to us and out the others. God is a source of a river, and as it flows, it touches the banks and gives life through the banks of the length of that river. When we love God, we touch the people around us in love. So the second part of the commandment, the first is love the Lord your God. Why? Because he first loved you. The second part is to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, as I said in the introduction, all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this incident. Only Luke adds the scribe trying to justify himself and asks, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to slide out from underneath having to help his neighbor. Jesus answered to the scribe in Luke. He has this short story. The man asks the question, well, who is my neighbor? Right then, Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan? A man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, a very desolate strip uh, with nothing but rocks and dirt. He comes and the thieves uh, come upon him, beat him up, leave him for dead. And then there's a priest, priest from Jerusalem going to Jericho and he sees the man beside the road. What does he do? He walks on the other side. And then a Levite. A Levite is a priest but who would live in a village and provide religious services there but also then would have weeks in the, in the temple. So this man is probably going back from his week in the temple, going back to his village. He sees the man that is wounded beside the road. And he passes on the other side. 
and a Samaritan comes by. Now, you may remember there was great tribal animosity between the Greeks, I mean, the Jews and the Samaritans. Centuries old. Still going on in Jesus' day. To the point, uh, Jesus' disciples don't want Jesus to walk through this little tiny country of Samaria because it might be polluted. They want him to walk around Samaria. So the Jews and the Gentiles had this tribal animosity. Samaritan is coming, and he sees the man, a Jew, lying there dying. He binds the man's wounds, puts him on his beast of burden, takes him to an inn, tells the innkeeper to take care of him, hears and he pays him for his services. He says, and I will give you the rest when I come back through. Jesus asks that scribe, that lawyer, that religious elite, he said, and so who was the neighbor to this man? He said, the one that helped him. And Jesus says, go and do thou likewise. See, the love of God flows to us and out to help others. Who is your neighbor? Jesus doesn't leave it in an amorphous state, a vague, unclear, ambiguous statement. He makes it clear. It's not geographical. It's not the person that lives next to us or three doors down. It's whoever you come in contact with who is in need. That is your neighbor. You see, it's clear. We can't wiggle out of it like the scribe was trying to do. Well, they're not really my neighbor. If they're in need, and you come across them, they're your neighbor. And that's how we love and begin to love our neighbor. But Jesus adds a little part to it to help you find it. It is said, by the way, that um, Karl Marx, who, who was the first communist, wrote Das Kapital and uh, the Communist Manifesto. He did so. He was, from, he was from Germany, but he was living in London, and he did all of his research and his writing at the British Museum. And it was said of Karl Marx that he loved the poor working classes of London. He saw their plight. He knew they were dirt poor. He knew they, they were racked with disease and they were paid pittance. And he loved those people. So he wanted to provide a way for them to have release. But the rest of the report is that Karl Marx was inordinately hostile to other people. That no one could get along with him. You see, he had this abstract idea of who to love. Not one that's close and personal. We're to love those with whom we come in contact that have a need. But Jesus puts another little caveat on his, on his commandment. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to have a stellar self-image. That we have to be completely clear about who we are and, and what we are and what a great person we are. No, it doesn't matter if you're a sadist or a saint. 
doesn't matter if you're one who is, is completely competent in all things or you're all thumbs. We all have things about ourselves we would like to change. If I were to ask you now, and I've done this before, and it, every time it's the same answer, and it's the same response, I'm not going to ask you, I'm just going to tell you what I, what I would ask you. If I were to ask you, give me five things about yourself that you're really proud and you think are good. Then I said, give me five things you would like to change about your life. Which would be easier? The five things that you want to change are always the easiest. You see, if Jesus is saying, love your neighbors yourself because you're such outstanding citizens, we would all fail. Because we all have things we want to change. And you know, I'm too, I'm too dumb, I'm too fat, and my nose is too big, I'm not smart enough. We all have things we want to change. But Jesus is saying when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. It's very simple. We are to love the neighbor as we want to be loved. What would you do, uh, or not, not what you do, but um, what would be your response when you would say, to people, or someone would say to you, do you want people to respect you? Not as who you are, but, I mean, not as what you were, but who you are. Do you want people to respect you? Of course you want people to respect you. Uh, Jesus is saying, whenever one of these relate to them, that these people treat them with the same principles. You want people to look at you and, and see your need, not just your faults? Do you want people to respond to you with gratitude, with courtesy? If you do, use those same principles to treat other people. Extend the same courtesies which you would like to receive from others. Maybe we could practice the admonition of, of Leland Stanford. Not Leland, yeah, Linus Pauling, sorry. From Stanford University, Linus Pauling, the, the um, chemist and who started the whole vitamin C thing. You know, he came out with vitamin C cures colds a long time ago. Well, did you know that Linus Pauling, as a chemist, won the Nobel Science Prize in chemistry? He also won the Nobel Peace Prize. Not a bad, bad legacy for life. Well, he said this. Maybe we could practice the admonition. Um, no, where did he say? Okay, he said, do unto others 20% better than you would expect them to do unto you. To correct for subjective error. <laughs> I think that's a, a good bit of admonition. So I trust that Jesus' call to you is clear. To love the Lord your God with all of your being and your neighbor as yourself, meaning treat them as you would want to treat them. Because this, my friends, is our raison d'etre. That's what God says our life is about. But remember this. 
And just about every week, in the benediction, Rob says this. And I'm going to reinforce what he says. You don't do it alone. We do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we cannot do it alone. We need the Spirit speaking to us in worship. We need the Spirit and the brothers and sisters of faith helping us and supporting us. And so we don't do it alone. But let me ask, what would you have to do, to, what would you have to change to emphasize in order to truly love God with your whole being, to fulfill this raison d'etre? And now for this week, identify someone who's your neighbor, somebody in need, and show them the love as you would like to see it for yourself. We don't do it alone. We do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. And today we have a table that proclaims to us the truth that God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. And we have been given life through him. And at this table it proclaims again the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord. And it also tells us that Christ is present here at this table. And when we come and take the elements, it symbolizes the feeding of the Lord in the depths of our hearts so that we can go from here refreshed, encouraged, nourished by the Word of God written and the Word of God proclaimed in elements. So come to the table. Those of you who are truly followers of Jesus Christ are invited to come to this table and take of this meal so that you might be able to fulfill the raison d'etre of loving the Lord your God with your entire being and your neighbor as yourself. So friends, when... This is it? When Rob comes and does the words of indecision, he'll invite you then to come forward. But let's pray. Loving God, we're thankful for your word that gives us simple instructions that helps us to know how you desire us to live. And not only how you want us to live, but how you, that you know how life works the best. And so we desire to fulfill the raison d'etre of loving you and our neighbors ourselves. We ask for your help in Christ our Lord's name. Amen.